Welcome, foolish mortals, to GGDN, a companion podcast to my blog, Gay Goth Dungeon Master. I'm your host, Non Serwian. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode. Today, we're going to be continuing with my series where I examine the examples of play and early editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Last time, I did the very first ever example of play from the very first edition of Dungeons and Dragons. No, it's not the one we refer to as first edition or 1E because that's advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and we'll get to that later. It was the original edition of Dungeons and Dragons, sometimes called Zero Edition or OD&D, or the White Box. Today we're going to be taking the next step up. Now, the next step up was technically the Greyhawk supplement, followed by the other supplements that were released for the original box set, but none of those contained further examples of play. So the next time we got a brand new example of play was when we got a brand new boxed set. But first, a little history. So Gary Gygax was famous for having verbose and impenetrable prose, but there was probably no prose of his so impenetrable and verbose as the prose in the original three little brown booklets of the original white box. Um... There was a number of reasons for this. I mean, obviously, the man has has or had his own style of writing. Um, in addition, he was writing for what he thought or assumed to be a experienced wargamer audience. So there were a lot of concepts and terminology that he felt his audience would already understand and therefore he wouldn't have to explain. And also, we need to remember that Dungeons and Dragons was the first ever role-playing game. There'd never been a game like this, so it's not surprising that the original author or authors would flounder a bit when trying to figure out how to explain it, since it's not like you were asking people to do something they already had experience doing, like in a standard board game or a more traditional tabletop war game. So a lot of the original players, uh, especially the ones far removed from Gygax's own group in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, uh, struggled really to understand exactly how the game was supposed to be played. You probably got a lot of interesting fixes and house rules, but you also probably just got a lot of confusion. And one person who was confused was the son of John Eric Holmes. John Eric Holmes was a neurologist, a professor of neurology, in fact, uh, an aspiring fantasy author and, you know, a fan of fantasy fiction and tropes. Now, he purchased Dungeons & Dragons for his son, and then his son was immediately dismayed at not really understanding the rules or how the game was going to be, was meant to be played. So uh, Eric Holmes uh, had to go had to go at reading it himself, and he found it equally impenetrable. Though I assume in the end they did kind of figure out how to play the game. But 
Eric Holmes hit upon the idea that you could really rephrase and restructure a lot of this and make it a lot easier to understand. And he wrote to TSR, he wrote to Gygax, offering to do this. And they did, in fact, take him up on this offer. Um, you can read a lot more about this in various books uh, that talk about the early history of Dungeons and & Dragons and the early history of uh, TSR. Uh, some of the famous ones are like Empire of Imagination, Playing at the World of Dice and Men. I actually got a lot of my information uh, from a series of self-published books. Uh, the series is called Hawk and Moore, referring to Grey Hawk and Blackmore, the uh, home campaigns of Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, respectively. Uh, it's by a Colorado-based author and game content creator uh, named Kent David Kelly. They are very long and very thorough and very thoroughly researched, which is one of the reasons why I learned so much from them and why I refer to them so so frequently. Um, can be hard going to get through them because they are not professionally written books. As far as I can tell, they have little to no editing, probably editing by the author, which as a professional editor, I can advise you never ever to do that. It is impossible to edit your own content. Um, but if you're willing to put the work in, and it will be work, there is a lot of information in there, um, probably more than any other single text, um, largely because it has no real commercial aspirations, so they didn't cut anything. Uh, a lot of professional books would cut a lot of material out and say, well, this, this isn't necessary, but uh, they left everything into the series. So I would check it out. It's either free or very cheap as well. So it's another advantage it has, but it is, it is very thoroughly researched and cites all its sources. So um, it's also a pretty reliable text. Anyways, uh, so having, having been taken up on his offer, Dr. Holmes went about revising the, uh, the rules of Dungeons and Dragons to make them more understandable and more readable. Uh, he had at his disposal the three original Little Brown booklets plus Greyhawk. I don't believe he had access to any further supplements. And he also was completely unaware that behind the scenes, TSR was already preparing <clears throat> the successor to Dungeons & Dragons, which would become Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And he was especially unaware that at the time... Gygax was hoping to kill off the original version of Dungeons and Dragons, just let it go out of print and switch their focus entirely to advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So when uh, Eric Holmes finally submitted his manuscript, TSR did some further editing. The most significant change they did was they removed all references to play beyond third level and transformed what, Holmes had really thought was going to just be a new revised edition of Dungeons and Dragons into the basic box, basic Dungeons and Dragons, the, the so-called blue box set because it had a blue cover with a dragon on the top or a dragon on the front. And they also put in lots of references to advanced Dungeons and Dragons, basically saying if you want further information 
or you want to play beyond third level, see Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Interestingly, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was not available when the Blue Box was first released. Uh, the Blue Box came out in 1978. Uh, the Monster Manual of the of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons that was the first book to be published for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons that did come out in 1977. So you could get the Monster Manual, but all you then would have were the monster stats, and of course the players aren't really supposed to have those. The Player's Handbook came out in 1978, but after the Blue Box. And the first edition player's handbook doesn't have any like combat tables in it. So you don't know how to make an attack rule, at least not from reading that book. And it does not tell you how to generate your ability scores. All that information is in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which wouldn't be published until 1979. So in a way, if you were trying to play AD&D in 1978, you would have to get that information by going back to the original white box. So in a way, the basic box is better seen as an introduction to original Dungeons and Dragons, like play this first, and if you want to take it higher, get the full white box, which you probably still could get for at least a little while. It's not really compatible with AD&D, even if you played it in 1979 when the full game of AD&D was available. So in a lot of ways, Holmes' Holmes's basic box, which is often referred to as Holmes Basic, is the real kind of odd one out transitional edition of Dungeons and Dragons. It never really went anywhere. You know, it 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 isn't quite compatible with OD and D because it makes some changes, like for instance, the uh, race as class change, where instead of considering a dwarf as a type of creature you could play, but you're limited to the fighter class. They just view the dwarf as a, a type of fighter. So your class is dwarf. The same thing was done with half, halfling. And it got even weirder with elves because elves in original Dungeons and Dragons could switch between being a fighter or a magic user. Um, they could do that once per delve into the dungeon is how I read that. Um, when, when they're allowed to switch. So you're about to go into the dungeon. If you take your armor and your weapons, you're going to be a fighter. And you can't switch back to a magic user until you leave the dungeon and go back to town. And then the next time you go down in the dungeon, you can be a magic user if you want to. Um, to bring the elf in line with the halfling and the dwarf in this racist class uh, matrix, uh, Holmes decided that Elves were a combination of fighters and magic users and therefore had to divide their XP evenly between those two. He didn't actually give them their own XP progression, but I guess you would basically um, be looking at the fighter, the fighter and magic user XP progressions and every time you got XP, you would divide it evenly between those. Uh, later versions of basic D&D would actually just give the elf their own XP progression, which was about twice as much XP, like twice as slow as the magic user, who otherwise would be the slowest character to progress. Um, so yeah, it the Holmes Basic isn't really compatible with OD&D, it's not compatible with AD&D, and it never received its own uh, sequel 
showing you how to play the higher levels the way that the other basic box sets the mold vey and um menzer box sets would so it's really sort of like yeah the the forgotten middle child of dungeons and dragons and yet it does have its fans uh i'm a fan um simply because it's the weird odd one out and i like things that are weird and odd ones out um it has a a, a really good retro clone to its name uh blue home journeyman which uh extrapolates where you would go if you were going to take these rules to level 20 so you know it is playable and it does have fans um probably most of them people who who started playing with this edition way back in the late 70s but yeah some people like me are also fans of it who never who never played it back in the day but um i just like it for the fact that it exists anyways this isn't a history of Holmes' basic D&D or a thorough review of it. Uh, we are focusing on the example of play. Now, I have no idea who actually wrote this example of play because Gary Gygax got, you know, got his hands on this before it went to print and made some changes. For instance, any reference to AD&D, that was inserted by Gygax, and, you know, obviously he took out all the information that would have given you, uh, would told you, you know, how much XP you needed to reach level 4, or what your fighting capabilities or spellcasting capabilities were. So, it's possible that this, uh, that this example of play was written by, uh, by Holmes, but it's also possible it was written by Gygax. One of the things that is significant is that it uses the the term Dungeon Master and the abbreviation DM. If you remember from the uh, White Box example of play, they were still referring to that role as the referee, a term that came from wargaming. But here we are finally using the Dungeon Master. The, the word Dungeon Master is used throughout <clears throat> the rule set always uh, capitalized, and here we see it as abbreviated as DM. So once again, it's done like a script. Um, this time, the principal characters are the DM and the caller. Uh, if you remember from last time, the uh, the rules request that you designate one player as the caller of the group. And so the caller is the person who tells the DM what the party is going to do, even though the DM can presumably hear them discussing what they're going to do and telling the caller, each player telling the caller what they're going to do. I guess I guess the decision isn't final until the caller announces it. Could be a good way to organize play. I've never done it myself, um, but it, it is... Uh, it is something you see in the rule sets all the way through to first edition AD&D. Anyways, most of this dialogue will um, be exchanged between the DM and the caller. I guess, uh, hopefully, providing an example to the to the players to say like this is how you should be organizing your game. One person should be communicating officially with the DM. So. This example of play starts on page 40 of a document that is only 49 pages, so it comes way at the end. And unlike in the white box, it has its own bold heading, example, so you know exactly where it begins.
DM. You're in a stone corridor, 10 feet wide by 15 feet high, running north-south. Caller. We're walking north. DM. 50 feet up along the corridor, there's a door in the east wall. It's five feet wide. Caller. Halfling will listen at the door. So it's not quite as perfunctory uh, as the the white box example of play so far, but it is still more or less giving you descriptions like dimensions and things like that. Um, they're not counting off the 10 feet, 20 feet and stuff like that, which I, I believe was to indicate, you know, the the referee giving precise descriptions for the benefit of the mapper, the one party member who was designated as keeping the map, drawing all, drawing the map out on a piece of graph paper as they played. But still, we're, we're focusing on dimensions rather than evocative descriptions. The halfling is going to listen at the door. Um, presumably, halflings have a better chance of hearing things than, uh, than normal humans do. So DM in parentheses. He knows there is nothing they can hear, but he carefully rolls a concealed die. Now that feels very Gygaxian to me, rolling dice when you don't need to in order to make sure your players don't know anything they're not supposed to know. Um, does that indicate that this was in fact written by Gygax? Who knows? The, the, the DM then says, he doesn't hear anything. Caller, the fighting man will, will open the door. He's got his sword out ready to strike. The halfling and the thief are right behind him. Uh, notice fighting man, the official name of the fighter class. Uh, it was definitely explicitly called that in OD&D. Um, and we're still using it. Um, it's stri- it stands out because it is not inclusive language. Um, so uh, I think it was better when they started changing it officially to fighter, which is gender neutral. Notice how the caller indicates that weapons are already drawn. This is something that I always forget to enforce when I'm running a game, but I think in the old days... If if combat started, but the the players hadn't declared that weapons were drawn, I believe the DM would not allow them to attack on the first turn. They would have to spend their first turn drawing their weapons. Um, I guess anything to get an advantage either way. So the DM rolls a two. So the DM actually tells him what he rolls. He's rolling the dice to see if they if they tr- they're trying to open the door. Um, you can assume most doors in a dungeon are stuck shut, and you roll a d6 to see if you're able to force them open. And generally, you succeed on a one or a two unless you have high enough strength. Although not in this edition. This edition does not give you any bonuses for strength. There is no chart for strength. So your 18 strength, if you get it, doesn't even matter. Um, so it's just a, a roll of a one or a two. Um, so he, so he tells them that he's rolled a two. The door bursts open. You see a room L-shaped 20 feet wide. From the door, it runs due east 30 or so feet, and then another leg of the L runs north. Then in round brackets, we read, they must enter and carefully examine to map a room. 
So that's a note for the reader saying, you know, you don't just uh, allow them to map it unless they actually go in and start exploring it. The dialogue continues. You don't see anyone in the room in front of you. Mm, in front of you. The caller. Anything else in the room? DM. Some trash along the walls. A small wooden chest on the floor in the middle of the room. Caller. Aha! The fighting man and the halfling will enter the room. The dwarf will hold the door. The others will watch the corridor. Remember, in the last uh, example of play, a pile of trash turned out to contain boots of elven kind. Now, uh, I, after explaining, after the caller explains to the DM exactly what each party member is going to be doing, and he's being careful, making sure somebody's keeping watch so they won't be surprised by a wandering monster, and also somebody's going to try to hold the door shut so a wandering monster won't be able to get in, the DM says, okay. So we've, we've used an entire line of text to make sure that the DM says, okay. But I guess we have to indicate that the DM has made note of these preparations. Now... We have a new character, player. So it's a player who's not the caller, but we'll find out right now which player it is. The halfling says, careful, it may be booby-trapped. So I guess that's the player who's playing the halfling. Notice they're not using any character names in this one. Um, they're not bothering to make them up, and I guess it's more important for the example for you to know what, what character class they're playing so that you can maybe have an understanding of what they're their capabilities and abilities are caller the fighter kicked the chest with his boot dm it is knocked over the lid comes open a thousand gold pieces spill out that's pretty decent treasure they're probably a suit well they can't be higher than level three i'm assuming they're level one uh caller good the fighter but he trails off because the dm is about to cut him off dm around the corner come four orcs Surface dwellers, kill them, cut them to mincemeat, pound them to hamburger. So this is the first time we see the DM speaking in character. We just saw a halfling speaking in character, and here's the DM speaking in character. So there's a little bit more drama in this one, a little bit more imagination and flair and color. None, no speaking in character occurred in the white box example of play. Caller, the fighting man is ready. He swings, rolls a die. An 18! DM, it's a hit. Roll your damage. I think no matter what edition you're playing, an 18 is liable to hit most most things. Caller, rolls a six-sided die. A four. In this edition, all weapons do a D6 of damage. So, he rolls a four. DM, he's dead. You cut him in half. The second orc is on you. He swings. Then in, in parentheses we read, the fight continues until all four orcs lie dead. So that's good. No party members died. Um, I guess we got a brief example of combat um, with a die roll and a damage roll. And the result, um, it is an orc. Orcs are one-hit die creatures. So, uh, you know, you roll a d6 and that's their hit points. I guess he had fewer than four or, or no, more than, no more than four, which is actually entirely likely. Um of course, it'll be just as likely for the players to fall with one blow if they're one, level one like I think they probably are. Everybody, so the, call, the, the game continues. The caller says, we search the other half of the room. Everybody fill your pockets, your packs and pockets with gold. A um, thousand XP is not a bad haul, um, even divided between uh, a full party. 
DM. The other half of the room is the same dimensions as this first one. 40 feet. You find four bunks, a table, and benches. Caller. We search for more treasure. DM. Nope. Nothing of value. Notice there's no rolls there. Right, there's no such thing as skill checks or a skill system in this early stage of D&D. Um, you just have to listen to the room description and tell the DM where you're looking and what you're interacting with. That's the only way to find treasure. Remember in the in the white box example of play, they found the treasure by thinking, wait, there's a pile of clothes in the in the corner. I'm going to search and see if the pile of clothes contains a cloak or a pair of boots. And it did contain a pair of boots, so he tried them on and he found out they were boots of elven kind. There was no like investigation rule or anything like that. He just had to listen to details and think about what those details could mean. Um, here the call is just saying we search for more treasure. At my table, I wouldn't allow that. That's not specific enough. I'd have to say where are you looking for treasure? I mean, I've just told you there are bunks and a table and benches. You're going to toss the bunks. Are you going to look under the table? You know, that sort of thing. The caller asks, how about doors? The DM, no doors in either part of the room. That's no visible doors. Caller, the elf and dwarf will search for secret doors. Uh, this is significant because elves still get a one in four on a D6 to find a secret door if they're actively searching. Um, and dwarves, I think, get that, they can detect stonework. So if the secret door in question has to do with stonework, like a sliding stone panel or something like that, the dwarf could, could potentially find the secret door better than a human character could. The rest of the party comes into the room and we shut the door. The halfling will stay at the door and listen. So again, the halfling on listening duty, so he must have good ears. DM. After determining which part of the room is being searched, he rolls a secret die. Uh, that's which part of the room is being searched for a secret door, because you can't just say, I'm searching the room for secret doors. You have to specify which 10 by 10 section of wall you're searching for. For If there's no secret door there, then you're not going to find it. If there is a secret door there, then you still need to roll the dice to see if you find it. So um, this is just to remind you that you can't just say they're searching for a secret door and then roll a die and, you know, hope for the best. The DM tells them, the elf finds a secret door in the northernmost 10-foot wall section in the eastern half of the L. Caller, does he hear anything? DM, carefully rolling a secret die for end-of-term end wandering monster. No, but the halfling guarding the door reports hearing slithering noises outside. Player. Hey, everybody, I hear slithering noises. So that's the player playing the halfling speaking in character again. I actually really like this because I, I see this happen at the table quite a lot. Like sometimes if the DM only wants one one uh, character to have information, they can pass a secret note or something to the player. Um, but a lot of times if they just say, yeah, you hear this, then the player will in character announce it to the table so that you can, you can definitely guarantee in game, I have told everybody this information. So I really like that detail because, you know, in my experience that happens quite a lot. Caller, let the elf try to open his secret door. Halfling, spike that door of yours shut. Man, I would really not like to play in a game where everybody was referred to by their character class. Rogue, do this. 
Paladin, do that, you know. DM. The elf opens the secret door. It's a dark passage, only three feet wide, running straight north. Caller. See anything? DM. Passage is empty as far as he can see. Caller. With his infravision? Uh, elves get infravision. Uh, we, we didn't have infravision in the white box. No no player character was able to see in the dark at all. Everybody needed torches. And the rules actually do specifically state that pretty much all monsters can see in the dark. So they don't need light to see you, but you need light to see them. But now we have infravision. It's not quite dark vision. It's more like heat. Well, it's heat vision, basically. You can see heat signatures of things. The, the hotter something is, the lighter it appears. The cooler something is, the blacker it appears. Um, one thing about infravision is if anybody who doesn't have infravision and therefore needs a torch or a lamp is carrying a torch or a lamp, that throws your infravision off. So the only possible way for a party to use their infravision and crawl through the dungeon in the dark, trusting on their infravision to guide them, would be for all player characters to have infravision. If even one of them can't see in the dark, then they're going to need a light source, and that light source throws everybody's infravision off, and then everybody, once again, requires uh, the light source. But I guess if this is a dark passage and only the elf is looking down at it, he can use his infravision. So the DM says, right with his infravision. Caller, okay, everybody into the secret passage. <clears throat> DM, in what order? Because you need marching order. And you really do need marching order in old school D&D because you need to know who's going to fall into the pit trap first. Caller, elf in front, fighter behind him. Dwarf will close the door and bring up the rear. What about the halfling? I don't know. I feel like, I mean, they get, it has given an example of them giving a marching order, but why is the elf in front? Surely the fighter is the tank. And yeah, what, like, I don't think that they've, they've got every party member in here. So if you were doing real marching order, you'd have to put everybody, you have to include everybody in the, in the, in the order they're going to be walking. DM, you've proceeded north a hundred feet when the elf comes to a stop. Caller, what's the matter? DM, he sees a gelatinous cube filling up the passage 60 feet ahead. Caller, crumbs, devils, somebody get a torch alight. Oh my god, they were walking in the dark. Somebody get a torch alight. Dwarf, go back to the door and listen for noises in the room we just left. DM, dwarf says, there's a hollow space under the floor here somewhere. Interesting that the DM puts words in the dwarf's mouth. I mean, I assume this has to do with the dwarf's uh, stonework detection. Caller. Okay, elf, squeeze back down the corridor and see if you can find a trap door. Where's that torch? This this next character is listed as somebody. Here it is. Uh, so whoever wrote this is like, I'm tired of making up characters. Uh, I've already got player for the person playing the halfling. So this next person is somebody. Here it is. DM. The gelatinous cube begins to slide slowly down the passage towards you interesting how he saw the gelatinous cube because they they were clearly walking in the dark um gelatinous cubes are kind of they're almost invisible anyway the only possible way that the the gelatinous cube could show up in dark vision is if one part of the gelatinous cube were warmer than another part 
but that's not very likely because the only thing in the gelatinous cube is going to be a bunch of dead bones and armor and stuff like that. And the gelatinous cube itself is probably quite cold. Um, so I wonder, like, I personally would have had him walk into the gelatinous cube and that's how he would have found out that there was a gelatinous cube there. And I'm not actually a very mean DM. It's just that if you're going to put a gelatinous cube there, it's because you want somebody to get into it. Now, I mean, if they had a torch, say, well, maybe the torch glistens on the surface of the gelatinous cube. And I would maybe would have given them like a surprise roll. I would have maybe like ruled a, ruled surprise for the gelatinous cube. And if this gelatinous cube surprised them, then he'd still walk into it. Um, and maybe that's actually what happened here. Although usually when the DM rolls a die, the um, the the script tells you in parentheses. So I guess he just gave them that for free, you know, 60 feet ahead, there's a gelatinous cube and a gelatinous cube can't move 60 feet in one combat round. So, um, I don't know. I think he was maybe going easy on them. Notice. Yeah. Nobody dies. I mean, nobody died in the last one either. Um, and we've had combat here and they killed four orcs and they didn't take it. Well, they, they didn't suffer any party losses and they found a thousand gold pieces so, um, you know, not bad, really. It doesn't seem like a very deadly game. Um, I still think the caller thing is a little bit weird. I like to see how they're speaking in character now. So that's a little bit extra imagination, whereas there didn't seem to be a lot of imagination in the white box um, example of play. The only possible instance of speaking in character was at the very end where uh where the caller said onward to better treasure and he could have been saying that in character although he could have also just been saying that as a player to the other players it's not entirely clear here you you get extra quotation marks so that you know plus the the way they're speaking makes it really clear when they're speaking in character so i uh i do like this one um, a lot um, for those reasons. I like for the fact that it has little touches to show people actually using their imagination and, you know, doing a bit of role playing in, in like the modern sense rather than role playing in the original sense, which was what role is your character in this enterprise? Like the fighter is your role or the magic user is your role. Like that was the original meaning of role playing was not like to necessarily get into a character psychology, but more and to, you know, to clear this dungeon of monsters and extract all the treasure, we're going to need a diverse set of skills. So which set of skills is going to be yours? Which, which, which skills are you contributing? What role are you playing in this adventuring party? It's almost more, well, it's more like your class, really. As a matter of fact, I believe the original book does refer to the classes as roles, not in like a, an official thing, like with a heading or something, because it, it never uses any real official designation of what the various character types are. It doesn't use words like class or race. But I do, I do, I think it does say like you, there are several roles you can play. So here we're talking about character classes and they're doing role playing and how we use it now, which is 
getting into character, speaking in character, making decisions as your character that aren't necessarily optimal decisions for gameplay. So I like that aspect of it. One of the things I really miss from the first one is I miss how they found the magic item. Um, I think that is a really good example of the only way to find magic items in this game, which is to listen to what the DM says when they describe the room and try to latch on to details that you think might be significant. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you, can't, uh, you can't find treasure on a die roll. Um, not that they did that here. They kicked the treasure chest open in case there was a poison needle trap on it. And it burst open and they scooped out the gold. Um, One thing I think they really missed an opportunity was they missed an opportunity to have a thief character attempt to pick a lock or disarm a trap. Although the most common traps for treasure chests in this version of the game are poison needle traps, which means that if the thief doesn't disarm the trap, then the poison needle stabs him in the hand. Then they have to make a saving throw versus poison. And if they fail, they die. Um, And that's probably what would have happened. So then you'd have character death in the example of play. Um, And I think it's interesting that in the first two examples of play for this game, even though the game was famously deadly in its earlier editions, we don't have any character death. Anyways, that's probably about all that I have to say about this example of play. Um, I think you should look into Holmes Basic if you don't know much about it, just because it is that weird odd one out. For example, it's the only edition of the game that Wizards of the Coast hasn't released as a PDF that you could download from DMs Guild or DriveThruRPG. Um, you cannot, the only way to get this is to find a used copy of it, which I got mine from eBay. I did not get the full box set because I can't afford it. Um, but somebody had, I guess, lost all the other components of their box set, but they still had the rule book. So I still, so I just, I bought that because it was pretty cheap. And I mean, this is a battered copy. A lot of the black and white artwork has been colored in um, and things like that. But you know, it shows me what the rules were. And of course, it gave me access to this example of play. Um, I don't know if I'd recommend you playing it. Um, I think I think some of these old editions, they're worth playing at least like one adventure through just so you get a feel for what they were like. And, uh, you know, I think it's worth checking this out. But what we've, I guess, learned today is that uh, at this second iteration, the second major iteration of the game, that there's a little bit more role-playing now. There's a little bit more, you know, getting into character than there was. The 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 first example of play was, was very much mechanical and perfunctory. And there's still a little bit of that, but there's also, like, even from the DM with the, having the orc saying, we're going to grind you into mincemeat, you know, so that they know that, you know, these are bad guys coming to kill them. Anyways, that's all for me today. Uh, Join me next time when we will be moving ahead to the... uh, We're going to go ahead to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons because that's the next one chronologically. 
um, because the full game of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was available in 1979 and Mold Bay Basic wasn't available until the 80s. Um, I suspect that Moldvay Basics example of play will have more in common with this one um, and that there will be some significant difference in the AD&D example of play to reflect the greater complexity of that rule set. But we won't find out until we get there. Until then, um, roll more dice and listen to goth music. Thanks for listening. I hope you like what you heard. I don't have a Patreon, and I don't want your money, but please come again and tell a friend.